At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. So Smart Podcast, episode 193. This is one of those episodes that's just one long, freewheeling conversation with an expert on a topic And that topic is gossip. And the expert is Rob Willer, the psychologist who has been on the show several times. He's in the brain trust, if you are not so smart. I often reach out to him, even outside of the show, to understand things when I'm trying to research or understand a topic that I know he is an expert in. And his most recent research was related to pluralistic ignorance. And that was the episode he was most recently in. I love that episode. That is my favorite episode I've done of the show so far, and he was crucial to the understanding of that topic. And when we talk about stuff, we often talk about the research that he used to do. About 10 years ago, he was researching gossip and its function in both one human brain and in groups, how we use it to keep up with the reputations of people within our social networks, how we use it to solve problems and thrive and cooperate and overcome selfish urges and establish trust, break trust how we make sure we don't get betrayed or hurt or taken advantage of, and how we help others also make sure they don't get betrayed or hurt or taken advantage of by trading information about one another's reputations, what people have and have not done in our presence and in the presence of others that we feel are trusted members of our community, people we love and care about. And he likes to say, imagine a world without gossip. How would we keep up with the social dynamics? How would we keep up with the, the flow and the flux and the evolving landscape of our reputations among one another, who, who can and can't be trusted. But it goes much deeper than that. And this is such an important thing to the human condition. You may be surprised to learn that more than half of all human speech, all human communication, when, when people meet each other and talk about stuff, most of that is gossip. More than half, according to the literature, more than half of what we do whenever we talk to one another, especially face-to-face, is gossip. We gossip a lot. It is a big part of being a person. It's not trivial, and it's not bad, but it is complicated and nuanced, and you will hear all about that in this interview. I don't think I need to introduce it anymore. Here is a conversation with psychologist Rob Willer about the psychology and the science of gossip.
Rob Willer. I'm a professor of sociology, psychology, and organizational behavior at Stanford University. Um, what is taking up your time right now, Rob? We're talking about some of your research from many years back. Yes. Uh, but it's something that every time we've had a chance to talk, you've been on the show a couple of times. I've, uh, I've, it's something we're like, we should do a show about that other thing that I did. And I'm looking forward to talking about it. But what are you up to right now? Uh, I've been doing a lot of research on politics, um, research on political persuasion, research on uh, message framing, research on uh, social movement, mobilization, social change, uh, different ways in which groups are uh, succeed or fail in, in changing their, their communities and societies. No, that's good because that's uh, what I think about all day long. Okay. Uh, so, so let's take a break from our obsessions and return to something else, which is related to all of this. And it's actually related to it in a way I think that the audience is going to be surprised by because I was, I was very surprised to really think about this in a deep way. Um, before we get into giving away what it's about, even though if you've downloaded this, you already know because you looked at the title of the show. Um, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about reputation before we get into this, because uh, we're going to talk about gossip, and it may seem strange that gossip is a part of group uh, dynamics, group evolution, uh, the way that groups survive and thrive in a organism that spends so much time communicating and passing abstractions back and forth. Um, you talk about, in both of the papers that you've uh, done on this, you open up talking about reputation management and how important reputation systems are for human beings. If you could talk about that at any length. Yeah, well, social scientists think a lot about the problem of cooperation, you know, how it is that individuals manage to overcome selfish urges to just pursue short-term maximization of self-interest to instead come together in groups and pursue joint efforts to cooperate to trust one another, to be trustworthy, uh, to look out for other people. And this is, you know, this central question of, you know, how do people overcome self-interest to find the benefits of group life animates so much social science work and, and so much of my research. If you had to locate one big answer to that problem as maybe the, the dominant one over the last 15 years in literature, it would be reputation, I think. So reputation to a great extent solves the problem of cooperation. So people uh, value their reputations, they benefit from having a good reputation. And if you are an untrustworthy or selfish or non-cooperative person, uh, you get a bad reputation and your bad reputation can lead to all sorts of negative consequences, including the possibility of being ostracized or expelled uh, from the groups that you inhabit. So when it comes to reputation, I think that a lot of us would like to think uh, especially Westerners in the modern era, especially if you're around Gen X, you're like, I don't care what people think about me. I do what, you know what I mean? Like, like, mm -hmm. like, like I live my life by my own rules. And, uh, it's important that you, that you don't care what other people think, never care what other people. That's a, it's a light, mm -hmm. like a life lesson. Yeah. It seems to me that this is yeah. like saying, um, don't have a, uh, don't have a, uh, a, a brainstem. You don't, you shouldn't have a brainstem. Nobody should wor worry about it. It's impossible. You can't not care what people think you're a primate. Am I right about that? Yeah. I would say that it is clear that the vast majority of people, I think it's clear that the vast majority of people do care deeply about their reputations. And it's really kind of a defining feature of being human is that you, you care about uh, what people think of you and you maybe even care more about it than you care about a lot of other things that we assume people care a lot about, like material resources. It may be that after a certain level of material resources that you care as much or more about the regard that people 
have for you as about you know how much money you have in the bank. Yeah, because social costs to a primate are life and death. Uh, ostracism is the ultimate punishment for most of our history. As I mean, as uh, the only thing worse than that is just straight up being you know stoned by the group by the tribe, right? So like that's ostracism is an awful outcome of bad behavior. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted to think about it from an evolutionary perspective, if you have a sufficiently bad reputation to where you essentially can't access any reproductive opportunities, you know that that is as bad as being as being killed from an evolutionary perspective. And something some of my friends have, t- have talked about uh, here during uh, COVID is that, uh, and this is something we we had joked about before, but uh, privately when we're interacting with people, even people we've known for a while, we started to have this thought of like, would you be trustworthy in a zombie apocalypse uh-huh. <laughs> like we're yeah. starting to judge people like would you be useful in that situation and more importantly would you be like a stephen king character that mm-hmm. the one the one that's always the, the everybody hates because and i feel like that's that that is why we hate that stephen king character because we know that when the shit goes down that person's going to get us killed or, or there's not going to be is going to be the freeloader or they're going to be the one who won't play along and cooperate or help and like, I feel like we have the, a sense, uh, a in, intuition about that very quickly when we're interacting with anybody. And, and I know there's been research into trustworthiness to, you can just look at a person. They've done that crazy research with the boat captain with children mm-hmm. and that they were actually politicians running for office in another in election. Hey, I'm dropping in to tell you about this research because it's really cool. In 2009, uh, John Antonakis and Olaf Dalgas, they did this research where they had children look at pictures side by side and pick which of these two people would they choose to be the captain of their boat for a trip from one country to another. And they didn't tell the children that what they were actually looking at were candidates in French parliamentary elections that had already taken place in 2002. And when they compared the ratings of the children to the actual election results, 71% of the time, the person that the child said would be the most trustworthy person, the person they would pick as their boat captain, it matched the person who won that election. And there's been a lot of talk, a lot of speculation, a lot of further research, and there's a lot of literature in general about trustworthiness, but it often comes back to this particular study that seems to indicate that there's some innate mechanism by which we judge a stranger's trustworthiness when we have nothing else to go on, when we're just disambiguating something that's uncertain, we have no extra information, children, adults, people from different cultures, different regions, there's something about a person's face that tells us, yes, okay, I could trust this person versus another person when we look at them side by side. Okay, back to the interview. And we seem to have a really good intuitive mechanism, perhaps even a psychological like organ as uh, that helps us just having one little conversation with a person judge their trustworthiness. What do you think about this judging of trustworthiness as constant, constantly running as like a, a, a subsystem as we're communicating with strangers and, and potential allies and such? Yeah, I think research suggests that one of the first things we try to size up when we encounter someone before we try to size up how competent or intelligent they are is how warm versus cold or trustworthy versus untrustworthy they are, which of course, from this evolutionary perspective we're talking about makes a lot of sense. Like the first thing you want to know is, is this person going to bash me over the head in the middle of our conversation? Or are they going to, you know, do me wrong in some sort of a way that that's sort of 
you know, the first thing you need to know before you move on to higher level considerations, like, you know, do we have the same taste in music or something? Um, and I, I think that, by the way, just, just one way to think about the role of gossip in all of this is imagine, so as we go around the world trying to figure out who we can trust, who we ought to cooperate with, who, who will be loyal to us, um, you know, who we should share group, you know, memberships with, we're trying to figure this out. And what if we didn't have gossip? Like, what if we didn't ever have mm. the ability to talk to other people about people who weren't there, which is more or less what gossip is, right? Uh, you would have to make mistakes with every single untrustworthy person to gain the information that they're untrustworthy, potentially very costly mistakes. You know, um, you think about the harm that could be done to you <laughs> if you had to get all information about trustworthiness firsthand from personal experience. Mm. And as soon as you reflect on that counterfactual, you're like, oh yeah, gossip is doing a lot of work in society. And it's no wonder that by some calculations, the majority of human speech is about other people that are not co-present. Yeah, did you mention, uh, what do we know about that? How much of human interaction is gossip? How much of human speech is devoted to it? Well, I'm not personally that convinced by any efforts to put a specific percent number on it, just because I think it's really hard to say, uh, you know, it's hard to get a representative sample of all humans in the world to say this very definitively in a cross-cultural sense. But I guess mm. I am convinced by the numbers I've seen that it, by the claim that it's the majority of human speech. The, the, the majority. majority. Yeah. The majority of our number. I've not seen a number under 50%. <laughs> so, so I think we can say that. You're, okay. You're telling me that more than half of what we do when we're talking to other people is trading gossip about people who aren't in the room. Right. And yet, <laughs> and yet it's like 1% at most of the social science literature is, is studying. You know, wow. And it's also not something that's really in our art and literature, you know, like it's very, I mean, like, unless you're watching a soap opera. And then, and then soap operas are considered low, low brow because of it. Like, like, right. but, That's right. but soap operas, it seems to me you're, it, you're saying are more accurate and true to life as to how we interact with one another. Cause in a soap opera, that's like most of what they're doing is like, they're talking about somebody who's not in the room. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then when that person's in the room, talk about somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's fascinating. Um, uh, and I think about it too, like we're going to get into the, to your research, but I, at least in my, um, uh, in the culture that I grew up in, there was a lot to be said about gossip, about whether or not it was okay to do it, which makes sort of a meta level to it, where you can get a reputation right. as a gossiper. You can get a reputation mm -hmm. as someone who talk, who will talk about you behind your back. You yeah. get a reputation, or they'll tell tales out of school, as they say. That's right. <laughs> what, what do you... Which it's so what? funny because the only way you would ever find out that someone was a malicious gossip is if somebody gossiped to you <laughs> to, to give you the information you needed to get it, right? You know, you couldn't see that firsthand. At it. Well, yeah, you couldn't because you wouldn't even know it was malicious. You wouldn't know that it was wrong information unless you talked to someone else who said, no, that's not how it was. <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, it's so funny because, yeah, I, I think a lot about this of like, why does gossip get a bad rap? Um, in society when it seems to do so much positive work. And I think part of it is that the positive work that it does for us is, is kind of invisible. I mean, I guess that kind of begs the question of why it's invisible, but you know, we have to do this counterfactual of like, what if you deleted all of this kind of communication, would you be better off or worse off? And I think you'd pretty clearly be worse off. Um, but maybe the reason that individuals tend to view God or that we, we have cultural conceptions of gossip is really negative is that, uh, 
it can be a, a weapon that can be used maliciously by people. Uh, it's very powerful, it's hard to counteract. If somebody wants to assassinate your, your reputation behind your back, it's very hard for you to track that and take care of it and fix all the reputational harm that's done by figuring out everybody who heard the rumor about you that was unfair or inaccurate or incomplete because you have your own perspective on things. Um, so I think that everybody has had the experience of being victimized by gossip that was that was that they thought was wrong or was incomplete or just totally made up. Um, and they're related to that. There's the problem of accurately perceiving the motivations of gossipers. Mm -hmm. So we find that some gossip is motivated by pro-social motivations, people desiring to protect other people from being exploited by someone who's not trustworthy. We find mm. pretty robust evidence for that in a paper that came out in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology that Matt, Matt Feinberg uh, was the lead author on. Um, but that's not to say that there isn't the other kind of gossip, that there isn't antisocial gossip where people just want to take somebody down who's above them in a hierarchy in an organization mm. or an informal group, or people want uh, vengeance on someone that they feel did them wrong or just you know, someone is jealous of someone else. This is a very common example from literature. Somebody's jealous of someone else in a, a Jane Austen novel and then, you know, spreads inaccurate, unfair rumors about them. That's right. That's a, all that literature is just, that's just, that's just, Jane Austen is just like gossip. So much of it, yeah. <laughs> unfair gossip, usually, yeah. Which I love. I love any Pride and Prejudice stuff, like where, like the entire thing is a lot of people saying nothing in front of each other but everybody knows what's going on and everybody's like hmm yes well yeah it's a it's it is true to life that if, if it's more than half of what we do um it's odd that that stuff ha has that uh well reputation i guess we could say yeah. because um you mentioned in both of these papers it's odd that this is considered anti-social mm -hmm. which is bonkers because the whole point of it is it's it's social this is how we mm -hmm. how we organize our groups and considered trivial, the soap operas and Jane Austen and things like that can sometimes be looked at as like, well, you know, that's that's you know, that's soap opera stuff. And it's it's neither. It's neither antisocial nor is it trivial. It's one of those important things that human beings do so that we can have groups and also pursue common goals and plan things out and have society and politics and all the rest. Have institutions like have Apple uh, and Microsoft would not work unless people were constantly talking about each other within the organization. Totally, and it's. It's not, I mean, it's, it's neither thing. It's neither antisocial nor trivial. If you want to speak to that in any way, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I haven't quite put all my thoughts together on this, but, you know, the research I've seen suggests that men and women gossip at similar rates, uh, but nonetheless, women have been pinned with the stereotype that, that they are the bigger gossips somehow. Um, and I do, and I don't, entirely know what the roots of that are if the if the data I'm seeing that men and women gossip to similar extents is is accurate um, and I have no reason to think it isn't um, but I do get a tinge of maybe some sexism when people slander gossip because they're I, I feel it yeah yeah for sure right don't you don't you sense well yeah Jane Austen is considered lady literature and soap operas are considered lady TV uh, gossip the word conjures up misogynist ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, you, you sent me a, uh, a UC Riverside study mm -hmm. that showed that, uh, women do not engage in tear down gossip more than men. Like it's fairly equivalent and, uh, men and women gossip at about the same levels. Uh, 
I mean, so similar that you couldn't, there's nothing significantly different about it. Uh, and it's, uh, and for both of them, it's more than half of what they do, which men would probably be surprised. I would assume listening to this half of this time you're talking to your friends, you're gossiping about people. It's something that men do a lot. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, this is, <laughs> I can report from the trenches. Also, men uh, men that's study... men that we do it a lot. <laughs> yeah, we do yeah. it a lot. Yeah, we, do, we <laughs> certainly do. <laughs> we absolutely do. Yeah. And, uh, uh, which, of course we would. I mean, like, if you want to think of something that we would consider hyper-masculine, like, a, like let's say, soldiers in wartime, like, it is very important to know who's got your back. It is very important to know who's a problem. It is very important to know who you can depend on. And you determine that by gossiping. Uh, you might not call it that, but that's what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I've been thinking about this for eight years, and I haven't fully figured out why we have these negative associations with even the word gossip, like why we don't have a sanitized version of the word that refers to, because we don't, I don't think, I don't think there's a moniker for like uh, pro-social reputational information sharing. You know, there's no, <laughs> there's, we need a, we need a, a, a good handle for that. We need a That's rebranding good. of gossip. Um, but everybody would agree if you really broke it down, like, oh yeah, no, I'm doing that. And I need to do that. Well, and, and what is social media if not just gossip? I mean, like all that, all that talk lately, um, and I, uh, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of talk in, in podcast space and all spaces where they're using the word signaling or, or they'll talk mm. about, mm -hmm. you know, that's just signaling. Or, uh, you're just uh, virtue signaling or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're talking about gossip, right? I mean, that's just another. That's interesting. I think of. Uh, I mean, yeah, if I'm maybe, saying to you, maybe. if I'm saying, I mean, some of it is, I guess some of what is called signaling is someone saying. Yes. So I think gossip. Yeah. Okay. So you, you complete your thought, Dave. Sorry. Oh, yeah. sorry. I, I, I'm, no, it's, you go, it's, you go. you're seeing it be born before you. Uh, the, yeah. <laughs> I, I would say a lot of, a lot of what we label as signaling falls in the category of gossip because you're, yes. you're, you are maintaining your reputation by saying, I don't like what that person says or does. That does not conform to the norms that I think that we should live by. And, uh, or you're doing the other thing, which is saying, I think that person did something great. And I think that that conforms to the norms we live by. Therefore, not only should that person's reputation be upped in the minds of the people listening to this, but also I gain a little drafting off the back of that by saying, I approve of it. Therefore, that means I also uphold those values. So it seems to me that there's something in the gossip space there. Yes. Yeah, so I think you're exactly right that uh, what we call virtue signaling encompasses a variety of forms of communication where you're taking a position on some morally valenced issue. Hmm. Uh, but one, I agree, totally agree with you that a subset of that behavior of that phenomenon is the behavior of gossiping about other people's behaviors that you're saying are untrustworthy or unethical yeah. because in so doing you are signaling i'm i must disagree with that i must hold the principle of whatever it is egalitarianism or uh, empathy or you know whatever is the thing you're saying that the the gossipy lacks you're signaling you must value and hold yeah. yourself and you can even see it with like the masks it. and things because you know like Masks are very, have very obviously become a tribal partisan signal type thing for some people. Uh, but then wagging your finger about it or not wagging your finger about it uh, is a form of saying, especially if you're directing it, at, look at that person not wearing masks. I, I, like when Trump took off his mask in front of everybody, like a lot of the talk was like, can you believe this? Like the, it, it has that feel of like, Again, this person is showing how untrustworthy they are and how they are not conforming to the norms and values that we have de decided are important to our particular group. 
Yeah, I think that one of the reasons that gossip is so helpful is it solves another social problem, which is when you directly sanction someone's bad behavior, just face to face, you say you shouldn't have done that or you do some other thing to punish them, either with other people watching or not. Uh, this is the most obvious way to address untrustworthy, uncooperative behavior. And people do this, right? You know, people think not wearing a mask is, is selfish and they they call people out and, you know, because they're, they're trying to modify this specific person's behavior or, or just, you know, whatever, you know, teach them a lesson. And uh, those research shows that people perceive that kind of behavior as uh, ambiguously motivated. So on the one hand, a direct sanctioner may be perceived uh, as being concerned with the principal involved, you know, um, as maybe a more moral or trustworthy person. But there is also, there are some circumstances in which, and some people, and certainly the recipient of sanctioning tends to perceive the person as aggressive or out to harm other people or hurt people's feelings or what have you. So when, you, when you're seeing somebody sanction somebody directly, it is reasonable to wonder, is their motivation that they really object to this behavior and they're trying to uphold some principle or that they want to hurt this person? And mm. gossip, if you're someone who's concerned about your own reputation, but you want to sanction a behavior, gossip is an alternate route. And so you can just go away from that person. You're not directly hurting them. And so no one need think that you're motivated to directly hurt this person. And you explain to other people why the behavior was bad and potentially even mobilize some sort of an ostracism scenario yeah. uh, and where you, you could remove the person from the group if needed. And you can see where that for someone, for the reputationally minded sanctioner, that offers a way to avoid the ambiguity of perception they might face by directly sanctioning someone. And yeah. I, I, I admit that I'm like very concerned with mask wearing during the pandemic. And I admit that I am hesitant to directly sanction someone, even though I think they, people should be when they're not wearing a mask and they're close to other people uh, because I fear that they will perceive me as motivated by the wrong motivations and that I might wind up in a fight because of it. They say that about 75% of gossip in this one study was neutral. It's just information sharing, like like keep, keeping everybody up to date on how people are behaving. Then, uh, But there was plenty of negative and also uh, positive, twice as much negative as positive. Um, they found that men and women gossip pretty much the same amount. Um, mm -hmm. People of all socioeconomic statuses gossip at the same level. So mm -hmm. they talk about there was this idea of the best habits of the rich. Uh, that is not true. <laughs> Uh, if uh, human they beings haven't do read it. enough Jane Austen novels, <laughs> that's yeah, right. The, the wealthy that's, doer. That's right. Very. Um, and they were talking like it's like as you as you mentioned, it's just the, it's the dominant form, the dominant thing we're doing when we're communicating. Um, so in your work, you 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 really start out by talking about you, we've already covered it that you you know we live in groups, but we are also individual brains, and there's so many benefits of being in a group. Uh, other people can see and experience and learn and do things that I'm not avail able to do so they can share that with me. They can also mm -hmm. observe the behavior of others that I'm not there to observe. And mm -hmm. when we work together on a problem, we can do things like build skyscrapers and, and cure diseases. That's really great. And even mm -hmm. since we were little groups that didn't have science or technology yet, being in a group is a guaranteed better way to survive in the wilderness than being alone. Mm -hmm. uh, so anything that helps group cohesion and helps decision-making and planning in groups is going to be something that's selected for. And we can imagine that's how we get all these innate brain structures and everything that makes us want to be gossips and be primates who share information back and forth about each other. Um, but 
the big problem with that is we are also individuals and there's a game, there's game theory at play. And so exploiting that system is going to be beneficial. Sometimes you can sometimes behave selfishly and not put in your fair share and get, and your genes are going to be more likely to pass the next generation if you get away with it. So there's Mm -hmm. a system in play to try to keep people from getting away with it, which is kind of what all this is about. Am I kind of on the same right page here? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's all extremely well put. And I think it's interesting to break down the different ways in which gossip can stop non-cooperative behavior or protect people from non-cooperative behavior. So in one of our studies of this, uh, Matt Feinberg, Michael Schultz, and I uh, conducted an experiment where we had people take part in cooperative games. Yes, let's get into it. This is so good. Yeah, okay. yeah. so this, this was a paper from 2014. We had people you know, we constituted people into groups of four people and they had to play cooperative games together. And then we would, for one round, and then we would reconstitute new groups with new people. And so uh, in one version of this study, we allowed people to send gossip notes from their last group about anybody that was in the group that they wanted to, to the next group about that person. And so if you were in a group and somebody didn't cooperate sufficiently and the group did worse as a result, you could write a note and say participant X was a real jerk and didn't cooperate very much in our group. And you can send that in, send that along to whatever is the next group that that person will be in. And then that group, all the members of the group get all the gossip notes and they get to read them before they go into interacting together. So that was one version of the study. So we had a version of the study where there's no gossip notes, it's kind of a standard what we call public goods game. Yeah. And we have this version with gossip notes. Then we had a third version where we were like, okay, well, in reality, you can do something with the information. You don't just get the information. You can do something. You can avoid interacting with people or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. um, when you when you find out something bad about them. So in that condition, when everybody got their gossip notes, they could then vote to exclude one person from the group if they if they wanted to. And we found that people did do that. So, I mean, the findings were quite interesting, I think. So first of all, people totally gossiped, you know? So given the opportunity in these two conditions where you could write notes about people, people did it over 80% of the time. And that's even if they were in a pretty cooperative group, people still found something to talk about, you know? And secondarily, people used the option to ostracize when there were people that were pretty, you know, when there was someone that was really non-cooperative that they wound up in a group with, they, they used ostracism as a way to defend themselves against that person's selfishness and exclude them from the benefits of the group. Um, Because a non-cooperative person just takes out part of the public good that's produced by the cooperators Mm -hmm. without contributing anything themselves. So you do a little bit better. And maybe more importantly, you don't benefit someone who did nothing for the group uh, if you exclude them. And what we found is, you know, unambiguously, gossip was functional for group life in this sort of very stylized experimental setting. So if you could gossip, that improved people's cooperation. People just didn't want to get negatively gossiped about. They didn't like the idea of that. But the real payoff was if people had the ability to write notes about one another and vote to exclude people. That was the condition in which overall cooperative behavior was highest. And when we broke it down, Matt Feinberg did some amazing analyses on these data and found some really interesting stuff. So basically there were three ways that gossip and ostracism together were functional for promoting cooperation. So one was just facilitating avoidance of non-cooperative people. So if you figured out who was not cooperative, (laughs) you vote to exclude them from the group and they can't really hurt you. But the other ones are maybe more interesting and and subtler. A second one was deterrence. So just 
in the first round before anybody's been gossiped about or excluded, just knowing you could be gossiped about and excluded led to higher cooperation in that setup. So just right away, people who might otherwise, who would have been non-cooperative in a different setup were like, okay, I, I better shape up for this setting because there will be consequences. And then the third form was behavior modification. So people who got gossiped about and then excluded from the group tended to, when they came back uh, around later, because you wouldn't get gossiped about if you weren't in the group. And so gossip didn't get passed on like secondhand. It just wasn't possible in the setting with the way yeah. we set it up. Uh, so you could come back with a brand new reputation. Nobody knew you were ostracized before in like a third group, if that makes sense. And uh, people, those people were indistinguishable from anybody else. So if you got ostracized, you assimilated totally to the overall group norm, the normative level of cooperation and the experiment right. as a whole. You could not tell a previously a previously non-cooperative person who had been ostracized was indistinguishable from a, a saint that had cooperated consistently the whole time. <laughs> right. So it was very effective for behavior modification. That's cool because I'm imagining this is like in the real world, this is a person who gets um, kicked out of the tribe or they have to move to another city because they ruined their reputation in, pre, in pre-internet days. And, um, and they wouldn't just go back to their old ways. I mean, like, you know, if we, we take this study and extrapolate, you yeah, can imagine they might wouldn't... wind up being mayor, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, but they like, they will learn, they learn a lesson. Uh, mm-hmm. They, when they move into their new social environment, they're like, okay, that didn't work out too well. And they update their behavior accordingly, even if they've totally burned all their bridges in the place they came from. Another thing I, I found really interesting was that if you wanted to predict who would receive negative gossip about their behavior in a group, you wouldn't so much want to know the absolute level that they had contributed to the group's, you know, public fund or whatever, the group, you know, cooperative fund. Uh, you would want to know the relative amount that they contributed, how much mm. they contribute relative to the people around you or around them. That Interesting. In the okay, yeah. Yeah. So, and that makes sense, right? Like if you're in the group and you're like, okay, we have a chance to gossip about somebody who's not pulling their weight here. Uh, wait, how do we determine who's pulling their weight? you know, well, we're going to do it relative to what everybody else did. And so that means if you're in a bunch of a group of a bunch of middling cooperators, you're going to gossip about the someone who, who didn't cooperate at all. But if you're in a group that of a bunch of high cooperators, you're going to gossip about someone who cooperated a fair amount, but just fell a little bit short of the group norm, which was extremely high. And this reminded me of a fair, there's a fair number of case studies from the social science literature of how even in groups of like very well-behaving people, there is still deviance. There is still free riding. There's, yeah, of course. You're not going to find a society. It's just they're going to define it up to where, you know, re- refraining from doing everything of complying with all of these extremely restrictive norms is what makes you a deviant. And I was reminded of this book by Kai Erickson called Wayward Pilgrims, hmm. which was about maintaining group norms uh, in the 17th century in Puritan settlements in Massachusetts. And Kai Erickson talks about how, you know, even in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, all these Puritans are all following the rules all the time. They still construct some sense of deviance and sanction people for falling short, even though everybody's being pretty darn cooperative and pious all the time. So it's, but there it's has real, to be deviance, right? Like we have to, <laughs> we have to gossip about whoever's falling short. Yeah. It's not a quantity. It's like the, I'm, assume, I'm thinking about this in terms of like, all this is emergent, right? So the Reputation is an emergent property of people interacting with each other. And there have to be other people for there to be reputations. If you're alone, it doesn't really matter, does it? And 
the all of these social dynamics that emerge from people hanging out, um, they always fascinate me in the sense they feel like magic spells that that fall over the group. They're enchantments that that that, that we live under, and I'm. You would think that like there's this running tally of what you're doing, and it's you accumulate it like a bank account. But no, this is a systemic thing. This is this is a group dynamic. It's uh, there are evolutionary forces at play. Uh, there's selection forces at play. So it has to be relative. It makes more sense that it would be relative. So even when everybody's being like Star Trek The Next Generation good, we're still keeping up with who's a problem in that scenario. It all, it scales to that level. Like, you know, you're on the, sh- on the Starship Enterprise and everybody is an ultra, uber, amazing human being. But this person is very impolite. <laughs> this person <laughs> this person's very direct. This person... Uh, uh, always takes one extra space chicken nugget, uh, and that becomes something we have to discuss because it's relative to the dynamic of the system. And that's because this is a system that's always exerting force on us as social creatures. I think that is amazing. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> there are examples of that driving groups to kind of ludicrous levels of overproduction. You know, to the point of extreme self sacrifice. I mean, you can imagine this is a dynamic you see sometimes in cults. I think where. Mm. You know, the group norms are so intensely enforced and people get, you know, so sunk into the cult, you know, as their connections to outside groups get dissolved. And, uh, you know, they reach levels of, of fervor that are, are really extreme, you know, because they're trying to keep up with some normative level of adherence to norms. Um, my That's really p- cool. To, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, continue, continue. That's I, my only thought on that is like, yeah, the... Who knows what environment you're thrown into, but this mechanism will continue to just ping. It's going to it's going to take in an input. It's going to put out an output. You're going to receive it, and we're going to go back and forth. It's going to just going to do what it does. And if you happen to be in one of those environments, it's going to do what it does in that environment, which will create very extreme outcomes. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, I think this is one of the mechanisms of like uh, these kind of extreme, perhaps fanatical groups, and how how they can how they can wind up doing what they do to such, uh, such amazing extents. Uh, one of the students I've been lucky to work with here at Stanford, James Chu, who's a, a recent graduate from our program. He, in his dissertation, wrote about a school in China that he did deep ethnographic work in where they ritualistically publicly reviewed everybody's uh, contributions to the group. The teachers, sorry, the teachers would get together and a principal would guide them in publicly discussing uh, what they had been doing for the school, this like lower income school uh, with these, these lower income students and then publicly evaluating, you know, whether they had been doing enough. So it's really bringing the gossip into the center of the town square and, you know, publicly discussing, are we all doing enough? Are we doing enough? And then this ratcheted up the reputation system to a level of intensity where people were, you know, working these absurd, like 16, 18 hour days, trying to give everything they could and sacrifice everything uh, for the kids which was a very noble mission, but they just, they overproduced the public good to the point of unsustainability and people would have health problems and burnout and they would, they would leave yeah. the school. Whereas if they could have worked in a more sustainable mode, they probably would have done more good just because they, they could have sustained their production of the public good. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is in a way, not an example of gossip because it was a case of what if you cranked up the reputation system even more by bringing it, into light, into public light, you know? Yeah. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by 
BetterHelp. And I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a the therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many, you can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, 
and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I'm also imagining that, like with everything else people do, there's we're very, you know we're broadly similar but infinitely nuanced, and so there's a lot of variation. There's always all all sorts of bell curves in human behavior. <clears throat> I would assume in this that in any population of human beings, you have people that are more gossipy than others, people who are less gossipy. I'm assuming in a in a dynamic like this, in a group like this, just as with anything else, extroversion and introversion and conscientiousness, all that kind of stuff. Um, there are people that be more gossipy than than others and less gossipy. You talk about this in your paper, in your other paper, that you talk about it as like, this is, some people are extremely pro-social and uh, some people mm-hmm. are less so. And I, what I thought was neat about that is, I think we can all understand that. We know people who gossip more than others um, and they serve a valuable function in the group. But also when you are more likely to engage in this behavior, you also are, you experience the gossip from others differently. So some people, uh, and just correct me if I'm wrong on this, if I understood it to mean if you're not a very active gossiper and then you receive some gossip, sometimes you can get, it can make you be like, like, you know, whereas other people are like, give me that gossip. Give me all that gossip. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, Uh and, um, we see some of this in like a lot of like, uh, the social media and YouTube videos that get passed around where there are people who, they feel like they are, they're way out on the extremes. Uh, there are a couple of, um, terms for these types where they see something happening that is kind of, for the most of us, is inconsequential, but they have to go out in the middle of the group and put a finger in somebody's face and go, how dare you? Like, like, they, like I feel like that's some of that, right? It's some of that variation yeah. we see. Because I'm imagining this is a person who, in their mind, is being ex- extremely pro-social. Well, one of the things, well, okay, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. So one, probably, I've been thinking a lot about why, well, I should say, I've thought a lot about why gossip has a bad reputation, but I haven't totally figured out what the answer is because, you know, malicious gossip is quite real. And sometimes people gossip as a way to get back at their enemies or to advance themselves. And we didn't, excuse me, we didn't study that form of gossip, any of our research, but we totally believe that it exists and that it's probably the main reason that uh, gossip as the whole 
tends to have negative associations. I mean, what our research shows is that malicious gossip isn't the only kind, but it doesn't even really quantify what proportion of gossip is malicious mm. versus pro-social. We, we don't know that. Some other people have taken a shot at that, but it's really hard to assess because you don't even necessarily know when pro-social gossip, you know, how would you, how would you really thoroughly study whether pro-social gossip, gossip that seems like it's helping somebody by warning them about untrustworthy others. How do you, how do you know the truth of the matter for yeah. every, everything somebody's talking about? It'd be such a difficult research. I project. understand. Cause it seems to me, this is like when you use the word argument. So like yeah. we often only think of arguments as, the bad kind or the bickering kind or the kind that results in no, no outcome for either party where we just, we just see, we just say, okay, let's stop. And, but arguments very often result in one person being persuaded or two people coming to understand an idea better. And that's considered an argument as well. Um, I think in gossip, probably something similar happens where there's all sorts of forms like, you know, George Washington is became president because a bunch of people talked about him behind his back and said, mm -hmm. what a cool dude. <laughs> He's yeah. a that, that would be a good person to lead us. There's a lot yeah. of pro-social stuff where people pass around and we, we use all sorts of other terminology for it. And we come up with ideas like, you know, valor and, and things that, that really are just sort of the, the conclusion of a lot of people agreeing that this person did what they ought to do in that situation. Mm -hmm. We'll call somebody a hero or a villain based off of how the gossip spins out and what the final conclusion of it is. But I think we, we, since we have so many other words for that, we tend to just save the word gossip itself for when we are, in, when people have engaged in some sort of hit attack, some Machiavellian attempt to ruin a person. Game of Thrones stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which, by the way, here's some research I would like you to do. Take all of Game of Thrones, throw it in, <laughs> throw throw the scripts into some algorithm, mm -hmm. and figure out how much of that show is just gossip. Mm -hmm. I bet right. it's I bet it's up in like seventy five percent of that show. We think about it's like swords and dragons and uh, undead, but I bet most of the time when you were watching that show, you're just sitting there listening to gossip. That's the whole thing. 75% yeah. of Game of Thrones was gossip and about 25% was somebody cutting somebody's head off. I would bet that the reason people get a bad connotation with God or why, why people have bad connotations with gossip is because many of the most damaging things that maybe have happened to most people are gossip related. You know, when I think about That's... you know moments when I felt great deals of shame or social judgment or just felt terrible you know, I, I can conjure up a couple times when I felt like I was purposely socially excluded based on a misunderstanding of something I'd said or behave some way I'd behaved. You know, those things really stick with you. We have a very acute sensitivity to social exclusion. We get very worried about people talking maliciously about us if we have a sense that that's happening. And so maybe it's because being on the wrong end of this dynamic stings so very, very much yeah. that we struggle to see that, oh, actually, we're also doing it all the time ourselves and benefiting from it because that, you know, those couple times when we got the wrong side of that stick, that it, it was <clears throat> wrong end of the stick, that it, it stung so badly. That's absolutely got to be it. And, and, and also uh, related to that is we always feel that low simmer of anxiety about is what I'm doing going to be something that harms my reputation? Or if you are have engaged in something that's complicated, you're like, I need to explain this to people. I need this needs to be, mm -hmm. I need people need to understand my side of this because I can feel that if I don't get ahead of this, it's gonna get out of control. And we we're always at all times feeling this. There's an anxiety that that primates feel. And and this is something you see even in apes, you know, they are always having this level, baboons even, like they're having this level of anxiety at all times. Mm -hmm. of what is everybody else thinking about me right now? What is my reputation within the group? Like it's always part of the primate experience. 
And I imagine every time it's turned sour for you, you remember that quite well. I also think there are like major reliability problems with gossip that the gossip E would be acutely aware of if the information gets back to them because they would have experienced the thing that's being gossiped about firsthand. So like the prototypical gossipy conversation one might have. So say I have some interaction with somebody where I'm uncomfortable with it. I don't feel like it went very well. I feel like it reflected badly on the other person. Maybe it's a very low level conflict of sorts, uh, but it probably wasn't an overt conflict because we don't have many of those in everyday life. And so it's just something that didn't sit well with me. I thought somebody maybe disrespected me or talked about something in an off color way. I come over to you, Dave, and I'm like, man, like, you know, Joe is kind of a jerk. As it turns out, we were having this conversation. He says this now here, I'll exaggerate what he said for effect so that you see the way I felt the way I heard it rather than literally word for word. And then I'll say something like, and I said this, and then now I'm going to impute what I wish I'd said that I've thought a lot about since this, you know, kind of low level conflict happened. And that will give you the sense that Joe, you know, was called out and yet persisted <laughs> in saying, you know, some terrible thing. And so, and that's like firsthand, right? Now you go to talk about Joe to somebody else say, man, I heard something crazy about Joe that he is not a good guy after all, because Rob said this, and then you give a version that sounds that, you know, you, you make the story a better story, perhaps, you know, or you compact it. Now it really looks nothing like what Joe actually said, <laughs> you know? Uh, and if this ever gets back to Joe, he'd be like, people are making shit up behind my back, you know, <laughs> and circulating stuff when I say two words wrong, you know, to somebody who didn't even voice that there was a conflict in our interaction. Yeah. Uh, and this, I think is a very common situation is that the information gets distorted in transmission so much that even though it's still perhaps functioning to communicate, hey, don't do things like what I'm representing Joe as having done fairly or unfairly. So it's still doing some moral work for society. Joe maybe did behave a little bit badly and, and deserves to be talked about, just not probably as extremely as I'm talking about him. Uh, so it's doing some work, but it's also quite fair for Joe to be like, this is bogus, man. This yeah. is, you know, I have been misrepresented. And part of being a, an emotionally intelligent and socially competent human being with a lot of experience with this is that we can have one of those situations that you just described and we can, we can edit it out a little. We like, we can right. sort of sort out. Yeah. Okay, Rob this, said this, but they yeah, probably yeah. didn't really say that in that interaction. Cause that's <laughs> right. like, that would be like fighting words or. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're marvelously uh, absurd creatures. I love it. Uh, the, um, I think it's, it's also interesting how urban legends seem to hijack our gossip. System. Absolutely. That's yeah. a really good point. Like, I think urban legends, most of the time when I've heard urban legends that wind up in cool books, you know, like The Vanishing Hitchhiker as turning out to be things that everybody's heard. I've heard them told to me as like, I met this guy who this happened to him or my, my cousin, this happened to her. And then they'll tell a story that actually is just circulating widely and didn't probably happen to anybody as it's being told but people feel like if this you know if it's just a story you heard and you don't have any connection to it it doesn't feel like a good story it might not be true yeah. it just doesn't hit as much but that's because we all like to gossip about non-present others who are known to us you know we we don't like to just say oh i heard a story once who knows if it's true? Yeah, I mean, I mean this, and I don't know who this person is. Yeah. Absolutely, this, these psychological, see these psychological mechanisms and the emergent properties that come out and form these group dynamic and group selection processes are you can see them manifested in all sorts of things. It's part of the vetting process of 
science whenever you start doing the um, the commentary phase where people are passing it around, right? And they're talking about it, uh, and people gain reputations or lose reputations within the within the science. It's part of um, the legal system, you know. What is a trial except a bunch of people saying like, "Well, this person said this, and this person said that, and here's what." Well, tell me about his reputation. Was he the kind of person mm-hmm. that does this? Um, it's a function of being a person. You see, even journalism, like a lot of journalism is like you go talk to subject A, then you go talk to subject B who doesn't say subject A said, like, I don't know about that. Then we talk to a third person, then we talk to an expert. And then eventually I have to hand it to you, the reader, and you go, okay, well, let me take a look at all this and see who's lying and who seems. Um, To sum up what you're saying in this study, I love, there are many benefits of gossip. And one that you particularly studied was gossip promotes cooperation by facilitating partner selection. Yeah. And so the gossip fosters and sustains the cooperation within the group because if there's a means for excluding people, individuals who become aware of other people's reputation can choose to say, you're on my team or you're not. And mm-hmm. you iterate that enough times and you do that in a population and it will start to form this um, cathedral of understanding that results in a better group, a group that can get stuff done better than if it didn't have all this stuff happening and simmering and always at play between every d- dynamic and everything we do. Like even if we, if I say, "Hey, can you help me move?" and you yeah. are, and you're you suck at that, you're you're late, you don't do any work. <laughs> at the end of it, you expected me to to give you some money, and then like all that's going to go into my head, and I'm going to tell everybody that that happened, and they're not going to ever ask you to help them move, and it's. But also the result of that, it sounds awful in some ways. The result is we all get our stuff moved better. And that, that happens at every <laughs> <That's> level. <right. laughs> and if you're, and if you're in a, a, a company, if you work at um, a big factory or you work at some Silicon Valley type company, that's happening all the time. And it's helping that company run better. Yeah. And I think you think about um, uh, dating, you know, like dating <laughs> is it's amazing actually that dating's worked so well with the internet as the facilitator of, you know, of pairing people or at least matching people to, to options for people to date. Um, because traditionally people would meet people through organizations they were embedded in like their workplace or their church, or more often they would be introduced, you know, or meet somehow through friends or family. And it really is kind of amazing. And you know, that the internet's worked as well as it has the one worries that, you know, people do use internet dating as a way to uh, behave in an untrustworthy way with the people they're, they're dating, you know, in a way that, that's hard to check. But, you know, you think about those old Jane Austen novels, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility. It's all about how to navigate this, this you know, uh, morass of information about potential people you could date and marry and try to get the accurate information about who is a good person and and prune out the potentially inaccurate information that's driven by vindictive motives about who you should should or should not marry and get the, get the good information so that you don't make a colossal mistake because you don't have enough personal experience. It's so good. I love it. There's a Mercier and Sperber who I, I, I fanboy over a lot because their work is so interesting uh-huh. to me. Um, they talk a lot about, you know, just we once we moved into an environment where passing information back and forth between brains became extreme this extremely valuable and rich resource for us to navigate because if i'm if just just physically if we're all standing on a hill and i'm looking this way and you're looking that way i have information you don't and it's very beneficial that we trade information back and forth but it introduces the problem that i might lie to you or I yep. might say things that are for the purpose of down the line, manipulating you to my ends and your losses. 
And um, so you have to have a system at all levels to sort of uh, sort that out, even if in interpersonal communication just between two people. It would make sense that we'd have this this emergent thing of gossip to handle it at the big group level. You, um, oh, yeah, it's it's Wickham in Pride and Prejudice. It's it's Wickham <laughs> who, who lies about Darcy. And, I'm going to uh, make that the says image. He's the bad guy. You that's know, right. In fact, it's Wickham that's the bad guy. That's right. I'm going to make that the image. But he's the, trying to get out in front on the whole thing. <laughs> that's right. I'm going to make that the image for this episode. I hope people get it. <laughs> um, you talk about uh, in your in the other study, you had um, you just wanted to. This was sort of like your exploratory work into like just kind of getting some terms down and also trying to understand like what might be some of the innate properties of this. I I enjoyed, um, you talk about the pro-social hypothesis uh, that Mm -hmm. we've been talking about here in this, but also you talked about the relief hypothesis, which I thought that was, I just want to talk about that briefly. I think that's neat. I think we've already covered the other things, Yeah, but but you, you talk about we cannot help but feel something in the presence yeah. of some of this stuff. And then when we engage in gossip, we feel something else. If you could just talk about that for a second. Yeah, this was really an idea that Matt Feinberg and Jenny Steller, my, my co-authors and students at the time had, um, but it immediately feels intuitive once you hear it, that you you get this, uh, when you observe people behaving or some specific person behaving in an untrustworthy, non-cooperative way, doing something bad, whatever that might be, you feel frustrated uh, and that the to the extent that you do, you are motivated to go tell people and you'd especially like to tell somebody who would potentially be exploited by this person or you know victimized by them in a future interaction. And interestingly, once you do, you get a state relief effect where your frustration abates because you've, it's almost as though you're like, I saw this thing, I, I, there is a problem. I need to fix this problem. Yeah. And the, th- the, uh, the way I'm gonna fix it is with gossip to someone I can protect from this problem. And that, that's almost the, it was almost that that was what the emotion was a signature of. And you, and you actually researched it. You, um, you did a couple of studies like this. You had people behave antisocially and then you had people, an opportunity to gossip about it and you measured their emotional responses to it. Um, what did you find there? That's right. Yeah. So people that observed someone who behaved in an untrustworthy way, they felt, you know, they reported feeling frustrated. And then if we gave them the opportunity to gossip about it, to someone who would interact with the person they saw interacting in an untrustworthy way uh, to warn them essentially about what, you know, what kind of person they were going to interact with, uh, then that would quiet their feeling of frustration. <laughs> um, they, they then felt better. They had this state relief effect. I love that. And it, it's, it's, I like the, the bodily nature of it, the visceral nature of it. Like, cause it reminds me of studies where they, you know, they give people something that makes them feel gross and then they give them the opportunity to get rid of it in some way. And this, you did that with, with gossip. And I love the, I love that it happens to you, which we were talking about that before we started recording is it happens. This, it, 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 it suggests, you know, the selective pressures that evolved systems within the brain that this, that you have no control over it. Like it, it's, it's unbidden. It's, 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 um, it's, you didn't choose to feel that way. It's like being hungry or something where you, I see something that somehow my brain has sorted out is not good for the group and everybody should know about it. And I cannot help but have this intense volcanic uh, wellspring of negative affect that just covers me in a blanket of gross. And I know intuitively, innately, how do I assuage that? How do I salve that? I go tell somebody about it. And then that negative affect drains out of me and I feel kind of back to equilibrium again. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think we've all had that experience of like, uh, 
like observing something that was messed up and just not feeling like you fully dealt with it until you've explained it to someone else. You know, like you're running to your partner to tell them a story about like, oh my God, I got to tell you about this thing that happened at work. It is crazy what this dude did. And, and you haven't really digested it until you've shared it with somebody. And that's just how strong that, you know, the emotional underpinnings of our motivation to gossip are. That's so. That's great. That's good stuff. I love that. That's that's. I want to think about that a lot. Um, I want to think about it every time I gossip now too. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think one last thing that's interesting that is also something I've thought about, but I haven't really landed on is celebrity gossip. Right. Like, how have mm. we gone this long without talking about celebrity gossip? I cannot believe like we this, have not done that. We love to gossip about third parties who are not present, who are also not personally known to us, but we know are known in a diffuse sense. Like we know of them. We know a lot about them. So we can gossip. It's an industry. People make a living doing that. Yeah. Magazines. You know, like I remember one time seeing a presentation by a technician at Google who was going through like one of the most searched things at Google. And he was like, oh yeah, it's basically celebrity gossip. And you look at Twitter (laughs) trending stuff. It's like basically celebrity (laughs) gossip, you know? And it's like, we love to gossip it's like one of the first things we used the internet to do like oh we got an internet let's go use it to do more celebrity gossip you know uh and it's fascinating we're so driven to do it but it doesn't seem to serve the same functions right it seems like it is a it kind of messes up this theory of gossip that i've laid out because it's like well i'm not going to go interact with tom cruise you know yes i can signal my principles my values by talking about tom cruise to you uh, so it does that, but it doesn't help you know whether you should or shouldn't date or cooperate with or whatever uh, with Tom Cruise, you know, because yeah. neither of us is going to probably interact with him. So I was thinking about it. And I think one thing is, you know, it's it, it could be that it's sort of um, piggybacking on a system that exists for other reasons. So like we want to gossip about especially morally valenced behaviors of non-present others so we can diffuse information that's generally functional. And then this emerged, you know, we evolved, be it, you know, biologically or culturally to do this behavior. And then we find ourselves in an environment where we all know of and are fascinated by these third parties that are celebrities that we never interact with. And so then they end up dominating a bunch of this space, even though it doesn't have as much functionality socially for us to talk about these people. Again, it does still have some functionality. We can still transmit what our values might be by talking trash about Tom Cruise, but we don't, you know, we're not warning anybody in any useful way. Um, I think also it's probably useful for, we just know that everybody knows about Tom Cruise. We know that everybody knows about George W. Bush or whatever. And so we can talk about them and we can have a conversation. So it's a way, it's a basis of common knowledge if we want to connect, you mm-hmm. know, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, like on Twitter, you're not like dying to connect, you know, you don't, you don't need to connect. You're trying to like, I don't know. Yeah. So I don't think it explains all the social media infatuation with celebrity gossip, but there's one last theory of communication in groups and gossip that I think is compelling that I associate with Christopher Bohm, who wrote Hierarchy in the Forest, who argues that, you know, humans, one of the you know, functions of communication for humans is obviously to facilitate cooperation. And, you know, that's kind of the the model of gossip I'm talking about. But one of the primary forms of cooperation that uh, primates were trying to, you know, benefited from creating is is cooperation that can check uh, dominance in hierarchies that's being, you know, that's exploiting other people. So like a major problem that you would have in a primate hierarchy is having like a high ranking 
male who just behaves terribly, dominates mm. other people, beats people up, monopolizes all reproductive uh, access, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And, you know, that, that this is a nightmare scenario for a, for a primate that can't communicate and cooperate because they have to be bigger than this person who's, a, you know, this, this primate is above them in the hierarchy and they're not, or else they would, they would be above that person, that, that primate. And so if you can't get together, then you can't ever oppose the higher ranking uh, primate. And so you need communication to do it. And so according to Bohm and, and others who think about uh, communication that facilitates cooperation as a means for opposing despotic leadership, if you will, um, if from this perspective, gossip has especially emerged as a way to, to check higher ranking people or primates bad behavior. And so that we have a tendency to gossip up in hierarchies. The content of our gossip tends to be directed out to hierarchy. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and now we're combines. not concerned Tom Cruise is going to come beat us up because he's the bigger ape or something, but we might have some sort of heuristic to gossip. That up. makes total sense to me. The whole, the system's just doing what it does. It's, it's, you know, it's like, uh, it's like the, you show a red dot to a, a certain type of bird and it can't help but do what it does you know so like our system all the inputs are coming in we should be gossiping about this person and and so we do and then we do it at such a level i mean if you see a beautiful person in on on tv you still have the your brain does what it does when it sees beautiful people if you watch a scary movie your brain does what it does in a scary situation if you have stuff that would be the material for gossip because it would be pro-social your brain's going to do what it does when it sees all that and uh Wow, it does, it's such an important part. Like we were saying earlier, it's it's more than half of what we do when we talk to each other. Um, it makes total sense that you create information exchange uh, media like magazines, newspapers, and social media. We're going to talk about celebrities a lot because of all the, all the things you said together, combining you know this perfect storm of brain stuff. And I love it. <laughs> so, and, and I'm here saying that celebrity gossip isn't particularly functional because you don't really need to find out whether you can trust or not trust Tom Cruise because you'll never interact directly with him. But who knows? Like, it's always possible if we don't do a good enough job of gossiping about, uh, you know, I don't know, reality TV show characters that they might even seize control of the country. Day, right. you know? like, it's possible. <laughs> you, know? you never know. Uh, you never know. If you Tom know. Cruise runs for president, all that becomes uh, very important. <laughs> yeah. Or if you just happen to like, let's say because you were on some weird plane, you're going some, you're traveling to London on a business trip. It just so happens Tom Cruise is traveling to London on the same plane. You crash on an island together and there's four people left. Three, two, uh, three of them are strangers, and one of them is Tom Cruise. All that gossip is now very valuable. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm gonna write it. That's my that's my next book. Um, I have one last statement, and this is just you just say whatever you want about it. But it came up a lot reading your stuff because there's a I don't. It's come up in philosophy a lot. The idea of is there such a thing as a selfless act? It, can you there be a truly selfless act? And it's it seems related to gossip in that, um, you know, you're the, see, I don't, I mean, I don't even know how to connect this dot exactly. It just feels like there's altruism involved here where we're trying to do something for the benefit of everybody else. When I, when I tell you about this thing, this person's doing, I'm telling you they're not trustworthy. It seems that I'm putting myself at risk in some way. Uh, gossip can be dangerous to me, the, the person delivering the information. 
And in some sense, it can be so dangerous that I might be sacrificing myself to deliver the gossip, which has mm-hmm. happened all throughout human history where someone says, this is probably going to ruin my career. Uh, this is probably, I'm going to, I'm a whistleblower in some sense. Um, and we, we regard that as very selfless. And I'm wondering what you think of that. Yeah, I think, I think you're right that there are definitely examples. I mean, I'm actually going to kind of go the other way on this. Cause I think you're right that this is one of the ways we know that there is real pro-social motivation that drives some of this gossip and that we should, you know, we should call it that, uh, we, we find in research that people would even pay money in an experiment in a lab experiment to have the opportunity to warn someone that they're going to go interact with, uh, you know, someone who's behaved in an untrustworthy way before. Like that was the strength and sincerity of their frustration and their pro-social motivation to, you know, to save other people from this untrustworthy person. They're like, I'm going to spend, if you get, you know, if I need to, I'll spend money in this lab setting to, to get this information across. Wow. Um, maybe one of the reasons we have a lot of trouble figuring out whether we can trust gossipers and whether we should think gossip is good on the whole or bad is that it's actually pretty costless to gossip. So unlike a generous act where I, I spend time or money to do something good for somebody else. And you, I credibly signal that I must be a pretty good person. When I gossip and warn you about a bad person, you know, if I made it up, you know, like, or I distorted it or exaggerated it, or I'm vindictively trying to assassinate this person's reputation for my own gain. There's not actually a ton of accountability in the system. The person's not there to call me out. You know, it's going to be hard for you to find out if I exaggerated the story or not. And so I think because of the absence of that personal cost to do the thing that may actually be a good thing, the pro-social gossip that benefits other people, uh, the absence of the personal cost maybe makes it not clear if it is a credible signal of Hmm. my goodness and my morality. Now, we made a laboratory setting where people had to pay to gossip. They were willing to do it. And it reflected how sincerely pro-social their motivations were. But in reality, what's the cost? I'm telling you a good story. If anything, there's a benefit to me, you know? Okay. Uh, so that may be part of our problem is, you know, when we're trying to figure out is Wickham a, a good guy or not, he's telling me, you know, how bad Darcy is. And I, I just can't tell for sure because I know that it doesn't, there's not a lot of harm to him for telling me something that's distorted or exaggerated. Yeah, that's right. And in the end, Darcy benefits from it. Cause when you finally meet the guy, you're like, Hmm. He's, not, right, he's, right. He's, not, he's nothing like they said he was going to be. And uh, uh, and by him winning you over, he destroys Wickham without having to say a thing. Uh, that's uh, people listening to this. Have you not, have you not read Pride and Prejudice? If you've not read yeah, it, right, or, right, yeah. if you haven't read it or watched it, do that. It's the yeah. shit. It's awesome. Um, it's good. Rob, thank you so much for all this. This is, uh, I know I, talk to you for way longer than I said I would, but uh, it's gossip. What are you going to do? Um, what are we going to do? We have so much to say on this topic. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love it. Um, thank you so much. Uh, just as a way to like say goodbye, uh, how do people keep up with you? And then we'll head out. Sure. Yeah. I'm on Twitter at, at Rob Willer and uh, my, my website's robwiller.org. You can find papers that I've been working on and popular writing that I've, that I've done there. It's not Ghostface Willer. It's a lot of fun Willer. to be on the show. It's What's not that? Ghostface Willer anymore? It's not Ghostface Willer anymore. Uh, I, I I don't know. I think I changed it when I entered my forties. Some <laughs> I used to uh, really laugh. I, effort. Yeah. I used to really laugh when I told people that, how to find you. Okay, well, I really yeah, appreciate I think, it. Uh, stay safe. I, Thank you so much. This was wonderful. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Dave. It's always fun to be on this show. Ichi ni ichi ni san chi.
That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com. For links to everything we've ever talked about ever on every episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Omni. And you can also find the show notes for this episode there. Links to the studies we talked about, links to his studies, links to his social, all of that at youarenotsosmart.com. Also, on Facebook, slash you are not so smart you can find half a million people like yourself who like this show you can talk about the show and share it and do that please share the show that's really the most important thing uh if you want to support the show is just tell other people about it if you're talking about something related to something i've ever talked about please send a link to somebody on twitter and facebook and you know, why not? TikTok too. I don't care. Maybe even Instagram Reels, but I am iffy about that one right now. You can follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Uh, if you want to really, really support the show, go to Patreon.com slash smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you get posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff, including episodes that come out early, extra stuff from episodes that nobody else gets to hear, and so on. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And the next episode, I'm not sure what it's going to be. I've got a couple things in the hopper right now, including a big episode I'm working on that'll come out later in the year about persuasion. Um, but the next one could be about porn addiction, because I did interview the world's leading expert on porn addiction and even went to their location and did a COVID-safe interview at their clinic. So that could be the next one. We'll see. Until then, really... Thank you so much for listening to the show, supporting it, and sharing it. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.